Let us pray. We ask our Father for hearing ears, for open minds to your truth, and for a gracious work of your Spirit in applying your word to our hearts. Deliver us from all distracting and anxious thoughts and cares, we pray, that we may give our attention to you speaking to us, for we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we're continuing this morning our studies in the parables of Jesus found only in Luke's Gospel. I don't preach here all that often and there are a good many of them, so you probably think this is going to go on forever, but it won't. We will finish one of these days. Uh, We're up to the parable this morning of the unprofitable servants, or as the NIV and the ESV have it, the parable of the unworthy servants. Now, we've seen in that our studies of other parables, that the context of a parable is vitally important to its right interpretation. And so we ask as we come to this parable this morning, uh, what does the context tell us about why Jesus told this parable? Confusingly, most if not all uh, uh, commentators, uh, thinkers, experts on the scriptures uh, think that These verses, Luke 17, verses 1 through to 10, are loose sayings of Jesus with no connection between them. However, for what it's worth, I think that's unlikely. It seems to me that Luke would have put them there for a purpose together. It seems to me that this teaching of Jesus in Luke 17, 1 to 10, may well have followed immediately on from what goes in the previous chapters immediately after the parable of the rich man and Lazarus and that these verses 1 through to 10 form a single unit of teaching. What is clear is that at the beginning of chapter 17 Jesus is resuming teaching his disciples the teaching that has been interrupted by the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus says to his disciples temptations to sin are sure to come But woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone, and the the original there refers to a, a millstone that was turned by a donkey, a great stone, not just a hand stone. If a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea, then that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Now temptations to sin uh, is more literally stumbling blocks. Stumbling blocks are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to stumble. Sure, to stumble means to stumble into sin, but it means more than that. It means to stumble in the path of discipleship, to stumble in the path of following Jesus. And it seems to me that the scribes and the Pharisees were in danger of causing little ones to stumble. That is, the new disciples of Jesus, the scribes, the the tax collectors and sinners who had begun to follow Jesus. They grumbled because Jesus received them and ate with them. They grumbled, they ridiculed Jesus because he said, you cannot serve God and money. Now Jesus is saying that the world being as it is, 
stumbling blocks are bound to come. They're sure to come. But that does not mean that those who cause them are blameless. On the contrary, they bear full responsibility for their actions. Jesus says, woe to the one by whom stumbling blocks come. Woe to him. It would be better if before he had done such a thing, he was put to violent death, a great stone cut tied around his neck and thrown into the sea. That would be much better than him living and causing one of my little ones to stumble. Friends, there are many mysteries about God's providential control over sin and sinning. But we must never suppose that God's sovereign control over evil excuses our wrongdoing. Remember what Jesus said about Judas in Matthew 26 and 24. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, that is in fulfilment of Scripture. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Friends, this is not saying that the sin of causing others to stumble is unforgivable. If it were, we would all perish, would we not? I think I can speak for you as well as myself and say that none of us set a perfect example for others. But if we are not to torment ourselves and dishonour God by supposing that our sins are so terrible that they are unforgivable. Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, He has an unclean spirit. All sins will be forgiven, even the sin of setting a bad example. The only sin is sinning against the Holy Spirit, And that appears to be attributing the works of the Holy Spirit to an unclean spirit. However, we ought not take Jesus' warning against causing his little ones to stumble lightly. It's a serious warning. It would be better, Jesus says, that we should perish in a violent manner than that we should cause one of his little ones to stumble, perhaps turn from Christ someone who had just begun to follow him. Now, there are many things which might cause such stumbling. I think we've seen in Philip's sermons in 1 Corinthians how in 1 Corinthians 8, the Apostle Paul applies this principle to the way we eat food, to our rights and privileges as Christians, and especially the right they had to eat food offered to idols. And the Apostle concludes that therefore if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Jesus, however, gives us a different example altogether, something that is much more likely to bother us, and it's the sin of refusing to forgive. Look at verses 3 and 4. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. It's a tall order, isn't it? Forgiveness is hard. 
We pray, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. But when we have been badly hurt, that's a really hard prayer to pray and an even harder prayer to follow through. And so often, instead of forgiving and forgetting and restoring relationships, we cherish a bitter spirit. And we chat with others about the wrongs that others have done to us. And what effect do you think that has on others who watch and listen to us? What effect do you think it has on a young Christian to see mature Christians refusing to forgive and gossiping about the wrongs that have been done to them? Do you blame them for thinking that our faith is worthless when we claim to be forgiven but refuse to forgive? Oh, some might say, Jesus only says we have to forgive if the other person repents. Well, that's true. But does that mean that we do not have to forgive when the other person refuses to repent? Some have said so. But it can't possibly mean that. For, because after Jesus taught us to pray, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us, he went on to say, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. We are to offer unconditional forgiveness. Is it any wonder with this standard set before them, that the apostles said, Lord, increase our faith. Here is a mountain, as it were, facing them. The command to forgive. And they pray, Lord, increase our faith. You see, faith in God is the channel by where, whereby the power of God flows into our lives, enabling us to lay aside our rights to serve others, enabling us to lay aside our bitterness to forgive, to leave our hurts with God and trust him to right our wrongs in due time. Jesus' disciples knew this. So did Jesus, of course. But his answer to their request for stronger faith is that what is needed, what they needed was not more faith, but true faith, living faith. The Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. What he's saying is that if we have living faith, faith in God, then we will be able to do what is naturally impossible. The laying aside of our rights in favour of others, the forgiving of things that might otherwise be unforgivable. Please remember that when you refuse to forgive, you're not only asking God not to forgive you your sins against him, but you are also risking causing one of Christ's little ones to stumble. So let's put our faith to work. 
let's prove that the faith that we have is a living faith. Or if it's not a living faith, let's pray that God would give us that living faith that would enable us to serve others, to forgive and leave the injustice with God. Now, supposing we were able to do that and to do it perfectly, what would be the next sin we might fall in? If we escape the precipice on one side, what's the precipice on the other side likely to be? Probably pride, don't you think? The danger is if we manage to do something that's good, that we'll become proud of it. And what we've done so far is set the context of this parable. Jesus tells us this parable to remind us that even if we were perfect, even if we perfectly obeyed God in every detail, we would still not have done more than we ought to have done. We would still have no reason to be proud. In this parable we have a master and a servant. The servant is, as we told the children, not a day labourer. He's not a person who works for a day and gets paid for it. But he's a slave. He has no rights. He has no privileges. No union. uh, No limit to the amount of hours he might be called upon to work. No limits to, to what his master might ask him to do. Jesus says, will any one of you who has a slave ploughing or keeping sheep say to him when he comes in from the field, come at once and recline at table. Take a seat and I'll wait on you. No, will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterwards you can eat and drink. After all, he's the slave and you're the master. And then when he'd finished, would you thank him for what he had done? Because he had done what he was told, as though he had done something special. In our culture, we probably would, wouldn't we? But in the culture of Jesus' time, the answer to this question is definitely no. Not at all. The slave's only done what he ought to have done. Nothing more and nothing less. And then comes the punchline. So you also... When you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy, unprofitable, useless. Any one of those words would do. We have only done what was our duty. Now, Jesus does not mean to say that we could possibly do all that God has commanded. He's not setting before us Christian perfection. We know from experience and we know from the scriptures that the very best of what we can do, what we could do, falls far short of the perfection God requires. Uh, We try sometimes more than others, and sometimes we fail more than others. At best, we are selfish and sinful. We know by sorry experience, don't we, the truth of the Scripture, that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Jesus is not suggesting that perfection in this life is possible. Rather, he's saying that even if we had obeyed God perfectly, which we couldn't do, as we ought to do, we would have nothing to boast of and nothing to be rewarded for. For we would only have done what we should have done. God God still would not owe us anything. 
any good he might give us would still be a gift. I wonder what Jesus' disciples thought of this. We don't know, of course, because they, there's no response. I imagine they were struck dumb. Sheer amazement. Because as a race, as a fallen humanity, we naturally think in terms of earning God's favour. And it's for this reason that many world religions teach that entry into whatever heaven that religion may believe in or teach about depends upon our good deeds outweighing our bad deeds. Indeed, so powerful is this, uh, is this thinking, this way of thinking, that even God's covenant people have succumbed to it at various times in the history of the church. God's old covenant people, Israel, changed the religion of grace into a religion of works, a religion of salvation by the grace of God, as God had revealed it to them by his prophets, into a religion of earning one's way into his favour and into heaven, of acceptance before God on the basis of their own righteousness. Apostle Paul writes in Romans 10 and verse 1, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for, the, for them, that is for the Israelites, is that they might be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God, that is the righteousness that comes by faith, and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness the righteousness that's revealed in the gospel because Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now you might think, well, uh, Paul was prejudiced against the Jews. Well, no, he was not. On the contrary, he was a Jew himself. He wrote as an insider into the way the Jews thought because he himself had once prided himself on having the righteousness that comes by keeping God's law. He says that when he was a Pharisee, in Philippians 3 and verse 6, he had considered himself as to the righteousness under the law, and what he means is the righteousness that comes by obeying God's commands and therefore being right with God, he had considered himself blameless. He thought that he had kept every commandment perfectly. As he proves in the letter to the Romans, this is not the faith of the Old Testament. He asks, how did Abraham become righteous before God? Was it by works, by keeping God's law, or was it some other way? What does the scripture say? Well, we read it earlier, didn't we? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. We naturally think in terms of meriting God's approval. But God's way with Abraham shows us that it is by faith, not by works. Paul goes on to explain it further. He says, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. It's true, isn't it? Wages are earned. They're not a gift. 
As to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Not only did God's old covenant people turn God's uh, religion of grace into a religion of works, but the new covenant church did the same. We turned salvation by grace into a religion of salvation by merit. It didn't happen all at once. It took centuries for it to happen. It took many centuries before the church formally gave human merit a place in the faith the church professed. Long before it gave a formal place for merit before God, it began to lose its grip. Here and there in the writings of those who followed the apostles, the next, those in the generations after the apostles, we find the idea that conversion of baptism only give the forgiveness of past sins. You get baptised and all the sins before baptism are forgiven. But thereafter, the Christian must, with God's help, earn further blessings and eternal life and that if they sin repentance uh, and other good deeds may provide atonement Tertullian is one of the early church fathers who lived from the year 155 to the year 220 taught that a Christian could not be pardoned without a satisfaction without some sort of meritorious act being paid sins could be forgiven but only on the payment of a price by the sinner through confession, self-humiliation or fasting. And as time passed, we find these teachings gaining a place, gaining ground in the church until we find the medieval theologians developing a whole theology of merit that it's possible for us to earn favour with God even to developing a doctrine of super-irrigation. There's a word for you. It means doing more than God requires. Super-irrigation. Not only did the church teach that it was possible to do more than God requires, but that some people had actually done so. And that there was a treasury of merit which was at the disposal of the Pope to give to people who would do something to earn it. And while it's true that the unreformed half of the church, modern Catholicism, heavily emphasises the grace of God, it still finds a place for works that really deserve God's favour in its teachings. It points to the canons of the Council of Trent that it is only possible for good acts to merit rewards including eternal life, because such works have their root in gratuitous grace. It's God's grace that enables us to do good works that deserve his favour, so it's said. They say consequently are of their very nature dependent ultimately on grace. 
Jesus said, so you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say we are unworthy servants, we have only done what was our duty. Following the reformers, therefore, Protestant churches rightly reject all doctrine of merit. Our Westminster Confession of Faith says in chapter 15 and paragraph 5, we cannot by our best works merit pardon of sin or eternal life at the hand of God. Even if we were never to sin again, we would have only done our duty and that would in no way make up for past failures. It would be like setting out on a, on a journey, a holiday trip in the car and uh, before you get out of, out of town, you're in a hurry and you put your foot down and you go too fast. Not that anyone here would do that, mind you, but for, for just for the illustration, you've broken the law and you're nabbed, nicked. And you keep the law very carefully for the whole journey after that. And when you get into the court, you say, well, Your Honour, uh, I kept it for the rest of the trip. Can't you let me off? No. You see, fulfilment of duty doesn't make up for past errors, past sins. Even if we had never sinned, we could never deserve anything from God. We would have only done our duty. Adam could deserve to die by sinning against God, but he could not deserve to live. That would be a gift. And we don't have the choice that Adam had, for we have fallen And we are sinners and we've all failed to do our duty. And this means that not only are the best of our good acts not deserving of any good from God, but it means in his sight they're all spoiled, they're all tainted. Everything we do outside of Christ is displeasing in the sight of God because outside of Christ we are rebels against him. Sin defiles all that we touch. And so if we are to have eternal life, we must take it from God as a free gift. Paul says, for the wages of sin is death. Wages are earned, aren't they? But the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, the scriptures everywhere teach that the grace of God is free. That the gift he gives, every gift he gives, especially the gift of eternal life, is a free gift. We cannot earn it. We cannot contribute towards it. How much can you contribute towards the cost of a gift before it ceases to be a gift? I'll give you this. It's free. Five dollars, please. No. Five cents. No. No, a gift is a gift. If you pay for it, it ceases to be a gift. And yet so deeply ingrained in fallen human nature is the idea of merit that the Apostle says the free gift, the free gift. It's a tautology, isn't it? But it's a necessary one. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And of course those well-known but often underappreciated words of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians for by grace you have been saved through faith And this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And that's what this parable does. It 
cuts the ground of boasting out from under our feet. The facts of the matter are that grace and grace is absolutely contrary to deserving. Grace and works are mutually exclusive. The Apostle Paul declares that in the day of Elijah, the majority of the people were in unbelief. Romans 11 and 5, he says, So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. And then he goes on to say in verse 6, If it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Now there it is, my friends. Grace or works, but not both. Someone might say, though, and we need to deal with this briefly, what about rewards? Doesn't the Bible teach us that God will reward us for services rendered? Yes, it does. Jesus said, uh, blessed, Matthew 5, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The Apostle Paul teaches that on the judgment day, uh, what we have done as Christians will be tested as though by fire. He says... Uh, if the work that anyone has built on the foundation, that is Christ, survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So our objective says, if works are rewarded, then they must deserve the reward. And so I rest my case, works are meritorious. But it by no means follows that because rewards, because works are rewarded, that they are meritorious. Back to our parable, Jesus says, When you have done all that you were commanded, you have only done your duty. Say we are unworthy servants, we have only done what was our duty. And so if God promises rewards, and he does, then they can never have been deserved as though God were ever in our debt, as though he owed us anything. Rather, God is so astonishingly good. God's love is so amazing. His grace is just beyond belief. It's so marvellous. It's so free, so wonderful, so incredible that he not only gives us eternal life, and all that comes with it, the gift of faith, salvation through faith in Jesus, his son, he's also created us in Christ Jesus for good works, which he has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And then he encourages us to walk in them faithfully, to rightly respond to his love and grace with faithful service and then he promises to reward us richly for walking in the way that he has provided and prepared for us we provide we make no return at all for the investment he's made in us and yet he promises to reward us richly isn't god wonderful isn't his grace astonishing 
utterly gracious. You might say, preacher, why are you making a fuss about a difference of opinion amongst people who profess the Christian faith? Why make a fuss about grace and works? Firstly, because we desire to be faithful to the teaching of Jesus. Jesus says in John's Gospel, chapter 8 and verse 31, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. We seek to honour our Lord Jesus Christ. We may continue in his word. Secondly, merit robs us of assurance. We can only have a well-grounded assurance of salvation if our faith is in Christ alone and not divided between, our, between Christ and some things we think that we have done that might help us get into heaven. You see, while we're relying on Christ and something else, we can never be sure that the something else is enough. We're always perplexed by uncertainty. That was Martin Luther's problem. He could never be sure that he had done enough or that what he had done was good enough. Christ's merits are everything. He has merited salvation, our salvation, by the perfection of his life and his death. All we can do is receive from him the free gift of eternal life by believing in him, by receiving him, by trusting him. And thirdly and finally, we make a fuss about the difference between grace and works because we are jealous for the glory of God. It's God's glory to be gracious. To talk about deserving good from God is to rob him of his glory. For it's his glory to graciously save sinners. He is our saviour. We could never save ourselves. Let's put our trust in him and give him the glory and the praise as our God and Saviour. Amen. Our gracious Father, uh, we marvel at your grace. We're astonished at how different your ways are from our ways and our ways of thinking. And we pray that you would work in us by your word and spirit to transform our thinking, our believing, so that we will think and believe as you believe and think. Bring our thoughts and our ways into line with you. Deliver us, we pray, from any idea of merit before you. Help us to rejoice in your grace always, for its freeness, the wonder of it. Amen.